Good morning. This morning, as, I'll, as I talk, you can turn over to Leviticus 25. Follow along. So uh, this morning, I'll uh, to lead off and study the book of Philemon, which uh, I'll be teaching tomorrow. It's not a shameless plug, it's just a fact. Um, I found myself uh, knee-deep in, in a question. As many of you know, Paul's, Philemon, Paul's letter to Philemon involved the return of a slave known as Onesimus. It was in the study of this letter, a question continued to come to mind. Why did God allow slavery? And why, of all things, would Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, refer to us and himself as slaves? And, I, and I'll speak briefly. This is, to me, this is uh, it's something that's been on my, on my mind quite a bit. Uh, really, ever since years ago, I watched a movie called Gods and Generals with uh, my good friend John Dickerson because I saw for the first time as a northerner that there were real people in the south uh, and then later on in life, I read the biography or auto, yeah, the biography of Stonewall Jackson, and he loved Jesus Christ. But I struggled, and I actually have a note inside of it saying, I don't understand this, how a man who loves Jesus so much can, can fight for an institution which was so evil. Uh, so I actually prayed about this. And uh, in looking at the scriptures... I hope we'll see that those who use the scriptures to validate the practice were incorrect in their interpretation of what God allowed. For myself, have I, have I, I found if I keep in mind that my God is good and righteous, and if I take time to search the scriptures, he will provide answers. So with that, let's, let us get started. Uh, a couple things to note. Oh, I haven't turned the page yet. Turned it too soon, too fast. So uh, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Josh taught on, finished up Ruth. And at the end of Ruth, he, he mentioned that Ruth and Boaz had a son named Obed. And Obed, when he mentioned the name, it just, like the scriptures sometimes pop off the page, it just, it just hit me like a ton of bricks, that Obed means to serve. And if you look up that name, that name actually comes from the verb in the Hebrew Hebrew, Abed, Abad. I'm not going to try to pronounce it correct. It's A-B-A-D. And that is the verb. And the noun is Evid. E-V or E-B-E-D. But the B is a, sounds like a V. Uh, I'll probably be mispronouncing that much during this sermon. That word Evid is actually the word that we will see throughout the entire Old Testament when it comes to a slave or a servant. As we move forward today, I just want to forewarn you, Leviticus 25 will be our main verses that we'll be jumping off of. If you're looking to put some bookmarks in your Bible, uh, Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 15 would be a good place to put them. Uh, if you go there, then at least you'll be within uh, hand's reach of where we're going to be. Turning to Leviticus 25, I just want us to remember as well uh, that this is sort of a half-teaching, half-preaching. And as we look at Leviticus 25, this is during the he's talking about the sabbatic years. Uh, both the Sabbath years, uh, which was every seven years where lands were, well, excuse me, the, that the debts were paid off, or I should say debts were excused, 
and slaves were released. And also it talks about the Jubilee year, which was every 50 years where lands were returned and slaves were let go and debts freed. And again, just for context, because sometimes we might forget it, and I had to remind myself a few times that everything we're going to cover right now, which talks about the way they're to behave in the promised land, all of this is given while they're still in the wilderness. So this is all instruction for what you should do when you get into the promised land. So Leviticus, we're going to be reading Leviticus 25, verses 39 through 55. If a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave service. He shall be with you as a hired man, as if you were a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. He shall go out from you, he and his sons with him, and he shall go back to his family, that he may return to the property of his forefathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, they are not to be sold in a slave's sale. You shall not rule over them with severity, they are you, but you are to revere your God. As for your male and female slaves, whom you may have, you may acquire male and female slaves from the pagan nations that are around you. Then, too, it is out of the sons of the sojourners who live as aliens among you, that you may grant acquisition. And out of their families who are with you, whom they will have produced in your land, they also may become your possession. You may even bequeath them to your sons after you to receive as a possession. You can use them as permanent slaves. But in respect to your countrymen, the sons of Israel, you shall not rule with severity over one another. Now if the means of a stranger or of a sojourner with you become sufficient, and a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to him as to sell himself to a stranger who is sojourning with you, or to the descendants of a stranger's family. Then he shall have the redemption right after he has been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him, or one of his blood relatives from his family may redeem him, or if he prospers, he may redeem himself. He then with his, with his purchaser shall calculate from the year when he sold himself to him up to the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall correspond to the number of years. It is like the days of a hired man that he shall be with him. If there are still many years, he shall refund part of his purchase price in proportion to them for his own redemption. And if a few years remain until the year of Jubilee, he shall so calculate with him in proportion to his years, he is to refund the amount for his redemption. Like a man hired year by year, he shall be with him. He shall not rule over him with severity in your sight. Even if he is not redeemed by these means, he shall still go out in the year of Jubilee, he and his sons with him. For the sons of Israel are my servants. They are my servants whom I brought up of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I, wanted, I do, want, do want to make one more note that everything I'm bringing, we need to look at it as a total. If you take any one portion, you don't see the entire picture. Part of that is what you see in verses, in the very first verses 39 through 43. Although it says, not a slave sale or as a slave, this is considered a Hebrew slave, and you'll see that in further, further verses. So in terms of what we're seeing here in Leviticus 25, 
There are three main distinctions when it comes to slavery outlined here in the Old Testament. Hebrew slaves to Hebrew masters, Gentile slaves to Hebrew masters, and Hebrew slaves to Gentile masters. We see in verses 39 to 43 the situation where a Hebrew slave sells himself to a Hebrew master. This situation specifically is where a Hebrew finds themselves so poor that they need to sell themselves to their debtor. A couple of notes as we go down these verses. Verse 39, it says he is not a Gentile slave. In terms of not a slave service, he's making differentiation here between this and verses 44 through 46. Verses 4, verse 40 to 41, at the year of Jubilee, he and his family are to go free to the land of his forefathers. Then 42 to 43, they are not to be treated as Gentile slaves or with severity. David Guzik makes a note, he's a commentator, he makes a note as to the nature of this slavery. Because for the Hebrew slave, it was an arrangement. Number one, chosen or mutually arranged. Number two, of limited duration. And number three, highly regulated. Keeping that in mind, uh, again, we're going to be coming back to Leviticus 25 a couple times. Turn over to uh, Exodus 21 with me. Exodus 21. And we're going to be reading verses 1 through 11. It says there, Now these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years. But on the seventh he shall go out as a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. If a man sells his daughter as a female slave, she is not to go free as the male slaves do. If she is displeasing in the eyes of her master, who designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He does not have authority to sell her to a foreign people because of his unfairness to her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes to himself another woman, he may not reduce her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights. If he will not do these three things for her, then she shall go out for nothing without payment for money. Again, as I mentioned during the last section of verses we looked at, we see that difference here. If you buy a Hebrew slave, that's that word, evid, giving us clarification that yes, the Hebrew who sells himself to his debtor is considered a slave. And then also we see during the Sabbath year, if the if a man is given a wife by the master, then the wife must stay. However, at least for an unmarried slave or one that already had a wife, they will go free during the sabbatical year, and also at the jubilee year, they will also go free. In verses 5 through 6, it mentions a, ma- a Hebrew slave who loves his master, and his family may stay with the servant, may stay a servant to that master, and make it permanent by having his ear pierced. Lastly, in this section, 
Verses 7 to 11 speak, to the man, speak of the man who sells his daughter to, as a female slave. Now, this is where we need to keep everything in context. A lot of times when we read a section, we might go 21, 1 through 6. We're understanding. Yes, I understand. I get it. I get it. But then we hit verse 7, and then we lose our mind, and we all of a sudden forget that God is a righteous and good God, and he is not unkind or unfair, or I should say unrighteous. So this is to be kept in that context of what we're seeing, and that we are, what we are looking at is not a parent selling a child for profit to a deviant. This is most likely a father who is poor, looking for provision and covering for a daughter, and possibly in a situation where he cannot afford a dowry. If we keep on going in verse 8, it says, If she is displeasing in the eyes of her master who designates her for himself. The same wording is down in verse 9. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. Again, reiterating for us, this is speaking of marriage, a father, son, a daughter, where he does not have covering for her. The daughter is being bought for the purpose of marriage to another Hebrew. That's why when we go back to verse 7, just to touch on that one more time, she is not to go free as male slaves do. This is where it clicks in our head and we say, well, that's unfair, she's degraded. No, this is for the purpose of marriage. Once she is married, every seven years of their sabbatical year, she would not then go out and leave her husband because the God, desire, God desires that marriage be for life. But if the master finds that she's displeasing, she can be redeemed back to her family, but the master cannot sell her to a foreign people. Again, a protection for the young lady. Nowhere do we see God allowing his people to sell their children to pay a debt, much less to a foreign people. You can, on your own time, look at Nehemiah 5 to see an example of this, where there was an uproar because people were selling their children because they were in debt. And also in verse 10, it says, If the, wife takes another, if the husband takes another wife, he may not reduce her food, clothing, or conjugal rights. However, in verse 11, if she is not provided for, she may leave without paying a redemption price. So in everything we've seen about redemption, Pastor Josh talking about redemption, in this situation, if she is not cared for properly, she may leave at no cost whatsoever. So when we look at this in total, we can see that this was not an opportunity to downgrade or mistreat women, but a protection over and a care for those that were poor. Let's take a look over at Deuteronomy 15. Continuing on with a Hebrew who sells himself to his debtor. Deuteronomy 15. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17. If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, then he shall serve you six years. But in the seventh year, you shall set him free. When you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your wine vat. You shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. It shall come about that if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you in your household, since he fares well with you, then you shall take an awl and pierce it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your servant forever. Also you shall do likewise to your maidservant. 
First of all, notice in verse 12, this gives us dif uh, a, a difference here between what we saw about the young woman who's sold by her father. This is a grown man, a grown woman, who are poor, shall be sold, begin to sell themselves to their debtor for a period of six years, then the sabbatical year, a sabbatic year, they, can be, they would be released. Verse 13 again reemphasizes the slave language, when you set him free or free from you. So there is a, 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 a essence of bondage there. But verse 14, notice a difference here that we're also given more information. That when they're free during that sabbatic year, they were not to go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your wine vat. You shall give him as the Lord your God has blessed you. Why is the master to do this? Verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. So for the Hebrew master who decides to buy a Hebrew, sl Hebrew slave indebted to him, you can see the conscious decision he must make. He must know the time is limited. At the end of the time, the debts are forgiven. And he must send his slave packing with arms full. This is not an unkindness. There's one consolation for him, though. If you, keep, if you stay there, uh, we're going to go down to verse 18. Remember back in Leviticus 25, we saw that a Hebrew slave can't be subject to a slave service sold in a slave sale, or be severe with him. But, in verse 18 it says, To the owner, it shall not seem hard to you when you set him free, for he has given you six years with double the service of a hired man, so the Lord your God will bless you whatever you do. Even though he's not to be treated with severity, it is a different type of service. It is a slave service, where the man is given double the work of a normal hired man. So let's go back. So that, that's a Hebrew to a Hebrew, a Hebrew slave sold unto a Hebrew. Going back to Leviticus 25, we're going to look down to verse 47 to 55. And I'm not going to read it all, but just as a reminder, that's back where we're at. This is when the Hebrew slave sells himself into the hands of a sojourner or an alien who has dealt one for, dealt, done well for himself. Verses 48 to 52 speak to the fact that, from, that the difference is from a, the moment the man has sold himself, he may be immediately redeemed by a family member or any time thereafter. He doesn't have to wait seven years. If he isn't redeemed immediately, the redemption cost will be adjusted for the number of years left until the Jubilee year. And if he is not redeemed, he will be set free at the Jubilee year. And since he is a Hebrew, the sabbatic years also come into play. Again, in verse 53, we note there, like a hired man year by year, he shall be with him. He shall not rule over him with severity in your sight. So that there's your Hebrew to a sojourner. It is different in that he may be redeemed any time, but yet he still is not to be dealt severely with. There is a, a third category of Hebrew slave I'll just mention in brief. This is in Exodus 22, where it says, it's just verses 1 through 3. It says, if a man steals an ox or sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five ox for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. 
If the man is caught while breaking in and is struck so he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. But if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, then he, be, he shall be sold for his theft. This passage is a little confusing because in the midst of talking about restitution for theft of animals, it breaks in with verse 2 and the first half of verse 3 saying, talking about the owner catching the thief. If he's caught at nighttime, he doesn't know what's going on. So if he kills the thief, nothing happens to him. But if he's caught during the day, it's obvious he's stealing, not murdering. So if the owner kills him, then the owner is accountable for murder. So if we end 22.1, he shall pay five oxen, oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. Continuing on the second half of three, he shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So there's another situation where someone could be sold as a slave due to thievery. So what of the non-Hebrew non slave in Israel? So looking back over to Leviticus 25, 44 through 46, I will read those passages again. Leviticus 25, 44 through 46. As for your male and female slaves who you may have, you may acquire male and female slaves from the pagan nations around you. Then too, it is out of the sons of the sojourners who live as aliens among you that you may gain acquisition and out of their families who are with you, whom you have produced in your land, they also become your possession. You may even bequeath them to your sons after you to receive as a possession. You can use them as permanent slaves, but in respect to your countrymen, the sons of Israel, you shall not rule with severity over one another. We see here that God did allow slavery of foreign peoples who were outside the Hebrew nation. But note here, there's nothing about inferiority or skin color or race. And of course, we know as Christians that there's only one human race. These slaves, as we saw in the reading here, are to be number one, either from pagan nations around you, or two, from the sons of sojourners who live as aliens among you. Now, it's impossible to, to take this in just a section without understanding the full context of what's going on here. So we need to go over to Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10 through 18. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10 through 18. When you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. If it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then all the people who are in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. However, if it does not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. When the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the men in it with the edge of the sword. Only the men and the women and the animals and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall take it as booty for yourself, and you shall use the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations nearby. Only in the cities of the peoples that the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite and the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that, you may not so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things, 
which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. In verses 10 to 15 here, we see how peoples are acquired outside of Israel, as mentioned back in Leviticus 25. These are people God has decreed for destruction who are allowed to live if they make peace. And if they do make peace, they're allowed to work as slaves within Israel. We saw back in Leviticus 40, 25, 45, it spoke about acquiring slaves from the sojourners who live as aliens among you. This is a picture of God's understanding of what will happen in the future. Here we see in verses 16 through 18 here in Deuteronomy 20, God instructing his people not to allow anything to live in the cities within the land that was being given to Israel. But God, knowing their future disobedience, for we know that the people did not eliminate all the people in the land, it states what is to happen to these people who end up still residing there. They may be acquired as slaves. God has never destroyed a nation which he did not judge righteously according to his standards. Thus, for God to allow people in the cities outside of Israel to accept terms of peace and serve within Israel or allow peoples within Israel that should not have lived to live and serve is a display of God's mercy. But when this is done, he places constraints on all who are involved. So we've seen some differences between Hebrew and non-Hebrew slaves. The following will apply to all. So we're just going to be going through a series of verses to give us an understanding of what are these constraints that God has placed on those who are involved in either the purchase or the, being the purchaser or the purchasee of slaves. First, going back to of Exodus 21. Turn to Exodus 21 with me. Twenty-one sixteen reads, He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he's found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. Our Lord never allowed, intended, or designed what happened between Africa and the continents in the 17, 18, 1900s. In fact, all those who did so, both the kidnapper and those who took possession of them later, according to this verse, we're all worthy of death. Nothing we have seen so far in the Hebrew or non-Hebrew slaves has come close to what we refer to as kidnapping for the intent of slavery. If we go down just a few verses, I'm going to read verses 20 and 21 and 26 and 27. If a man strikes his male or female slave with a rod and he dies at his hand, he shall be punished. If, however, he survives a day or two, no vengeance shall be taken, for he is his property. Verse 26. If a man strikes the eye of a male or female slave and destroys it, he shall be let go free on account of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female slave, he shall let him go free on account of his tooth. Verses 20 and 21. The context here is intentional, premeditated murder versus manslaughter. If the slave dies immediately, the master is bound to what it says at the end of verse 21. My version says he shall be punished, but if you have a side note like mine, it says he shall suffer vengeance. So the master is accountable for the life of that slave should he die. 
that's verse 20 and verse 21 in terms of him not dying for a day or two it is accidental and he is con it's considered manslaughter and you can go to numbers 35 for an outline of that we're not going to go there in verses 26 and 27 yes there is we're seeing corporal punishment allowed but as a deterrent for the for the owner even something as small as a tooth being taken out the master loses all investment in that slave he's allowed to go free hebrew or non-hebrew with no redemption so yes we see that there's an understanding of corporal punishment but the understanding of the corporal punishment that's allowed must be set against a backdrop of two contexts that we need to look at before we judge harshly first and i'm not you don't have to go there i'll just read through them if we look at just a a, 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 a a shallow reading of scripture. When we look at Judges 16, when Samson was captured after his hair was cut, how did the Philistines treat him when he was bound? He had his eyes taken out. When Babylon came and captured King Zedekiah and took him, how did they treat him? They killed his sons in front of him, and then they took his eyes out. If we look at early Roman society, a slave might be punished even up to death as on, with crucifixion with little or no excuse by the owner. Even against the backdrop of just these three cultures, God's law is one that calls for deterrence from mistreatment of those in care of a master. Deterrence that range from loss of investment up to vengeance on him in the case of his death. Secondly, we need to look at this in light of other verses or other portions of the law surrounding it. If you can turn to Deuteronomy 23 with me. Deuteronomy 23, verses 15 and 16. <clears throat> you, shall not hand over his, you shall not hand over to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall live with you in your midst, in the place which he shall choose in one of his own of, of your towns, where it pleases him. You shall not mistreat him. Yet as another term deterrent against harsh treatment, God allows a slave to run away. On top of this, he commands his people as a whole to care for him and not return the runaway slave, but to let him live among them. Back up a few chapters to Deuteronomy 10. Verse 17 through 19. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the widow and the orphan, and he shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. Show, so show your love for the alien, for you are aliens in the land of Egypt. The Lord does not show partiality between the Hebrew and the alien, and now uses their own history as slaves in Egypt to remind them to love people who are now in their possession, uh, to love people who are now in the position that they were once in. Do not be impartial by treating them less. We can back up some more back to Leviticus 19. Verses 33 and 34. The stranger who resides with you 
shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were once aliens in the land of Egypt. Oh, excuse me, let me back up when a, to verse 33. When a stranger resides with you in the land, you shall do him no wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So in total, how, how is this to be fulfilled for a master? To think of slavery as we think of it, looking now at scripture, how can the owner of a slave beat a slave almost to death? How can a slave owner beat him so that he even loses an eye or tooth in light of these scriptures? You are to love that foreign-born slave as you love yourself. You are not to treat a Hebrew slave with severity. What then could cause a slave owner to think there's any room for unkindness or cruelty? Who are they themselves in God's sight? Leviticus 25.25 says, For the sons of Israel are my servants, evid, slaves. They are my slaves whom I brought up from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. How did God treat his servants or slaves? His evid, he gave them water from a rock. He gave them bread from heaven. He gave them freedom from slavery. He gave them relationship with himself. And now they are, they, these Hebrews are those to treat, they are to treat those under their authority the same way. God intended that those in the care of his people, even slaves, be treated with the same compassion and care they had received from them from him. Is it any wonder then that we see that the son of this same God, Jesus, uses this image of slave and master so many times in his parables when speaking biblical truths? To the Hebrew listener, they understood them in the context of what we just went over, a master who was compassionate and kind. Well, one may wonder, maybe the wording is not the same now as in the Old Testament of old. Let's take a look over at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, this is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And we're going to read the portion where he quotes from the, from the prophet Joel. Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I'll pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. That bond slaves, as pastor said during the introduction, that is that word doulos, slave. The King James Version uses servants and handmaidens, which is just the male and female of the word doulos, the Greek for slave. This indeed is translated from Joel 2.29, which reads, even on the male and female servants, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. The male servant in the Hebrew here is, again, evid. The female is sifa, meaning a female slave. Again, this is important because it shows us that the Greek writers, when translated, equated the Old Testament Hebrew term evid with the New Testament Greek word doulos. We turn a couple pages over in Acts 4. 
The followers of Jesus then adopt this biblically accurate term to themselves when they pray after the arrest and release of Peter, the release of Peter and John in verses 27 to 30, where they say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Were they wrong to take this name? What did church leadership think on this matter in those days? What did they testify? Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. James 1.1, James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.1, Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude 1.1, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. And Paul is not hesitant to label others in the same way. Colossians 4.12, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a slave of Jesus Christ. And neither does the Father hesitate to call those who claim his Son as Savior his, slave, his slaves in Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his slaves the things which must soon take place. In Philippians 2, 8, 6 through 8, it states of our master, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even as Isaiah says in chapter 42, the father says, Behold my slave, my evid, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. It's fitting that we note, after seeing that, that Jesus said in John 13, 16, a slave is not greater than his master. The call to worship this morning closed with Jesus' words. So you too, when you do all these things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done that which we have done. Thus, I'll close with Paul's words. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, that your word brings to light truth. And Lord, those that would think us wrong for believing your word because you speak of slaves, they just don't know your word, Father. You have always been kind. You have always been compassionate. You bring to justice those to those who it's due. But Lord, yet you give your son Jesus Christ that we may be able to be set aside from that justice and have mercy and grace. Thank you, Lord, that you have indeed deemed us your doulos, your slaves, because, Lord, you are a master who is good and compassionate and kind, even taking the form of a slave, being obedient, and being put on a cross. For that we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.